You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to imagine, but that pint-sized dog on your lap, your precious Pomeranian, came from a long line of animals that chased Little Red Riding Hood through the woods, toothy critters whose ferocity and predatory nature inspired legends and horror stories, and whose howls still send chills up the spine of any backpacker. But today... No squiggles. No fun toy now. Give give to Daddy. Time to eat num-nums. Yes, your squiggles, whether a Pomeranian, Pekingese, Golden Retriever, or Mastiff, carries a whole lot of ancestral genes from the mighty Canis Lupus. Man's best friend today were wolves who went to the dogs. But what set that in motion, and in particular when, is hotly disputed among groups of evolutionary biologists. Comparing the genomes of dogs and wolves reveals that all dogs share a common wolfish ancestor. But researchers have arrived at different conclusions about just when that great-great-great-great hirsute quadruped lived. Was it 10,000 years ago, at the dawn of agriculture, or 30,000 years ago, when Neanderthals roamed Europe? The debate is fascinating for what it reveals about the power of selective breeding. Just consider the mind-boggling variety of dog species today, all evolved from that common ancestor in a relatively short period of time. But exactly how short? Evolutionary biologist Gregor Larson, a prominent figure in the field of dog genetics, is front and center in the dog-eat-dog arguments about canine genetics, and he points out that determining a date for that first step from wolves to hounds, that first domestication, is tricky. All right, Gregor. Well, let's start with what we know about dogs. Uh, It seems they all came from wolves, and we're even talking about little yip-yap dogs when we say that, the kind of dogs that fit in the palm of your hand. They don't look like wolves. No, they don't. But you're right, they do. I mean, there's there's a couple things that uh, everybody can agree on. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that people can't agree on. But the two things they can agree on are, one, all dogs, regardless of how big they are, how funny they look, all came from wolves. No, There hasn't been any other species involved. And secondly, that all dogs were domesticated prior to the advent of agriculture. So this was something that occurred with hunter-gatherers. There were no crops. There were no other domestic animals around. It was just people and dogs. Okay, well, you know, an obvious question is, how do we know they came from wolves? I mean, I look at the dogs in my neighborhood, and, you know, they're friendly little cute kind of critters, and sure, they're on four legs like wolves, but a lot of things are on four legs. How how do we know they only came from wolves? You're absolutely right. I mean, one thing that's been confounding people for a long time is just the disparity. When you look at dogs, you've got giant ones, you've got small ones, you've got yippy ones. They behave in different ways. Their coat colors are very different, long, short, short legs, strange heads and faces. I mean, the variability in dogs is greater than it is in the entire family of canids, which just gives you some impression of just of how crazy variable they are. And that's led a lot of people to suggest that there must have been other species involved because you can't create this amount of disparity between individuals unless you have lots of things blending together. But when you look at the DNA, it's as clear as clear can be. All dogs have very similar genomes, and those genomes are virtually identical to wolf genomes, which are very different to everything else that you can imagine a dog may have come from. You know, that's a very interesting point, that you can get all this diversity in appearance, Mm. behavior, and all that from the same critter. I mean, if the Klingons came down here and uh, started domesticating Homo sapiens, I wonder if they could produce such a wide range of Homo sapiens. You know, that's a good question. Um, it, I think what the the dog diversity is, what you can attribute it to, is just the human desire, the human penchant for novelty. We like strange stuff, and it's almost sort of like. Um, 
trying to do one up on the neighbors and keeping up with the Joneses. And if you've got a dog and suddenly there's a litter and a strange dog is in there and say it's got really short legs or a long snout or a, a domed head or whatever else, you, you see that novelty and human beings go, wow, that novelty is very cool. I'm now going to breed with that dog only and I'm going to accentuate that strangeness. And then we, in the last 150 years, we've been particularly good at this, creating breeds that really push the boundaries of what's possible when it comes to a physical form. And we have dog breeds now that they can't actually give live birth. They have to have C-sections because the heads of their puppies are too big to come out of the canal. So it's, we're messing with nature to such a degree, but I think it also demonstrates just how plastic nature can be when you apply these ridiculously strong selection pressures. Well, give me some idea of what the current estimates are as to when dogs became part of you know, the human experience. I mean, how, how long ago are we talking here? I, what I think most archaeologists will tell you that, or most zoo archaeologists will look at the fossil record, and that's where our primary evidence for this is coming. And they will say the first remains of definite canids that we think have the attributes of dogs, and not only that, not just the bones themselves, but they're found within contexts that are necessarily human. So some early burials, or you find them in places where humans were living. We're thinking somewhere between, say, 13, 15, maybe 16,000 years ago, something like that. So dogs were domesticated, I don't know, somewhere 10 to 20,000 years ago. I and mean, to sure. me, as an astronomer, that's, um, you know, pretty accurate. It's nothing. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it's also nothing, but, <laughs> but as an estimate, it's not so bad. But there seems to be some argument about these dates, and mm. it's characterized in the press as a spat between dog DNA researchers. At least they didn't call it a cat fight or a dog fight, for that matter. <laughs> What's the controversy here? So because of the lack of precision and molecular dating, people have turned to other things to try and date dogs. And most of that, it comes down to the zoo archaeology. And so one of the reasons there's this spat that you mentioned is because there's been a handful of papers in the last, say, three to four years that have looked at some old remains from the Ukraine, from Belgium, and from Siberia. And they don't look like wolves, and they sort of look like dogs, and they're just kind of weird. But uh, so people then, on the basis of some metrical analysis, have said that they are closer in appearance to dogs than they are to wolves, and so therefore these are 30,000, 35,000-year-old remains. They might represent an early attempt on the part of people to domesticate dogs or a failed domestication episode or any sorts of these kinds of terminology. But that evidence, again, is very new, and there's quite a few people who don't feel that the analysis that has been done is robust enough to make a confident assertion that these things are definitely dogs in the way that we think about dogs now. So let me see if I can understand how we really date these ancient dogs. I mean, couldn't I just go to the oldest burial sites we have for, uh, for homo sapiens, for humans, and just find the earliest buried dog? You could, but then you would be missing out the entire early history of the association between dogs and humans, because just because we had dogs didn't mean we were necessarily burying them. And there are quite a few people now who have dogs that don't bury them. So you don't want to make an automatic assumption that the very first dog burial is going to be the first domesticated dog. In fact, I would suggest that there's probably a couple of thousand years at least of humans and dogs relating in a way that would mimic what we're doing now, where they weren't buried, or if they were buried, we're not finding those things, because we tend to only find things, you know, Archaeology is a very uh, biased science in a way. We have a very limited appreciation for what was out there simply because of, of the taphonomic processes or the way that things get preserved and where we look for things and how we find things and associate things, that the first burial is, is going to post-date early domestication by quite some time. Okay, so what's another approach? I mean, how else can so you do this? So another approach, well, so what you do is you can find, you find, you can you certainly readily identify uh, remains as canids in the archaeological record. That's not a problem. And then you can directly date those bones, and the carbon-14 dating will tell you exactly how old those are. But what it then all comes down to is what we call the status call, because then you say, well, what is the status of this particular canid? Do we think it's an extinct wolf? Do we think it's uh, some other kind of large canid? Are there enough remains in order to confidently identify this as either a dog or a wolf. And so people have used a variety of different methods, and there's new methods coming out now to try and do this, called, things called geometric morphometrics, where you're take, taking into a size both differences in shape and size, rather than just, say, a metrical analysis, which is, uses the length or the width of particular features, so uh, the eye cavity or the snout or certain teeth and the positions thereof, and relates them to patterns of variation that we see in modern dogs and wolves, and says, uh, well, this pattern is more closely related to what we see in modern wolves than we do in modern dogs, so therefore I'm gonna, I think that this is a wolf remain rather than a dog remain. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if I could go back 15,000 years and look at the kinds of dogs that were roaming around then that were living in people's caves or wherever they were living, mm. would I find any breeds that I can still find today? Are there any mm -hmm. sort of really ancient dogs walking around? 
The short answer, no. Uh, the, I would say that one of my ongoing issues are sort of just things that I think about a lot is that the world right now, we are in such a different place than we were even just 300 years ago. If you went back 300 years and compared it to now, it's I would say that the world is now more different than it was 300 years ago than what 300 years ago was to 15,000 years ago. So uh, there were pugs in Victorian England, and the average weight of a pug was 30 pounds. So this was a breed that was recognized, and this is when breed, Victorian breeding really started to take shape, and you started closing breeding lines, and you started, kennel clubs started getting formed, and people started saying, oh, well, you can mate that with that, but you can't mate those two things. And that we started coming up with these discrete ideas of individual breeds that were immutable and fungible, so that everything, every dog within that breed was exactly the same. Pugs were 30 pounds. Pugs today, eight pounds. So we've, we've radically changed it, even though we call them the same thing, but the amount of change that we've put on them in just 150 years is probably much greater than existed in several thousand years of, of dog breeding in as much as it was dog breeding, because it doesn't bear any resemblance to what we do today, over the preceding 15,000 years. Another example. Um, Dogs used to be, again, 300 years ago, dogs did a job. You had a, the only reason you would have a dog, the only reason you would pay to maintain it and feed it is if it did something for you. There's a cost-benefit analysis. As soon as that job disappeared, you would get rid of the dog. So in Ireland in the 16th century, they had wolfhounds. This is what they called them because they would use the dogs to hunt the wolves. The wolves go extinct in the late and second half of the 16th century. Do you need wolfhounds anymore? No, of course not because there's no more wolves anymore. And these are big dogs that require a lot of food. So what do you do? You get rid of them all. And this happens over over and over and over again. So the very earliest dogs were only the ones that were doing jobs and it didn't really matter what they look like unless it was it pertained to that specific job. And if most of them are doing hunting or guarding, then it can just be a big dog or a fierce dog, but it doesn't have to be a certain color or a certain height or with a certain coat or anything. So our impression of what a breed is now is very different from what it would have been 300 years ago or 15,000 years ago. So that seems to suggest that looking at dogs today isn't really going to solve any of the puzzles about their origin. I mean, it's exactly. like and it's like trying to figure out, you know, how Homo sapiens arose on the basis of what, you know, people down the street look like today. Precisely. Okay. Well, finally, Gregor, I'd like to get to the question, and this is always an interesting question: <laughs> how this how this relationship got started. I mean, you read mm. all sorts of just so stories about how you know the wolves are hanging around the fire trying to get some food, and then you know it turns out some of them are appealing to us or useful to us or something, or maybe we just thought wolf puppies were so cute we had to bring them inside. How do you think this relationship began? What's the best story these days? Well, one thing I know for sure is that this relationship, at least when it started, was not intentional. Because you have to remember that dogs are the very first domestic animal. So we humans at that time, hunter-gatherers, had no model for what a domestic animal or a domestic plant was. So it wasn't like now where you can say, oh, we have domestic animals, so we're going to go into the Syrian desert and grab a couple of hamsters and put them in some cages and hope that they're okay with breeding in captivity and then pass them around the world as pets to small children, which is what we do. Because we know what a domestic animal is. Before there are domestic animals, you cannot envision a cute puppy. You can't envision something with a piebald coat and floppy ears and upturned tail and a short snout that looks cute and that your four-year-old likes to play with. That doesn't happen. So it has to be an unintentional evolutionary process whereby the dogs are becoming accustomed to a human niche and the humans are becoming more accustomed to the early wolves and the wolves also have a, a lower fight or flight response or a bit more curious and this whole, I like to think of it as a kind of a romantic dance where no one partner is leading it because they're both kind of entering into a relationship based upon not necessarily mutual interest but a mutual desire to take advantage of each other. So the wolves, as you've suggested, are probably taking advantage of all the waste that the humans are creating. And the humans, after some period of time of accommodation and uh, getting used to one another, are probably seeing the benefit of having dogs around. I don't know what that final step is. I think it's very difficult to speculate about what that may have been. But one possible suggestion is that you had a pack of wolves that got used to hanging around humans and started following those humans around and then kind of cut off any gene flow or stopped mating with those other wolves that were hanging out in different places because maybe they, those other wolves were doing one thing, or there's also a population of wolves in Canada that follows the caribou, and those are different wolves that hang out in just one place. So it's possible that you have a population of wolves getting used to humans, humans getting used to having the wolves around, and then slowly this process starts ratcheting up toward the point where humans start getting them closer, and then maybe start putting a more deliberate selective pressure on them for certain behaviors, guarding or whatever else, and then that slowly evolves into other things. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened, but I think those kinds of models which imagine a long-term multi-phase selection process are much more realistic than just simply, hey, puppies are cute, let's bring them to camp and hope that they turn into something that won't kill us. <laughs> Gregor Larson, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you.
Gregor Larson is an evolutionary biologist in the Department of Archaeology at Durham University in the UK. Okay, well, whether your hound has a long muzzle and a short tail, or vice versa, there's a gene or a set of genes for that. And they've evolved from past mutations that were then selected by either dog owners or because of interspecies competition. So evolutionary change is driven by changes in DNA. Next, what a research team learns by watching those mutations in action in real time. Plus, the co-evolution of biology and culture. How farming, rock music, and smartphones can alter our DNA, eventually. You say you want an evolution? Keep listening. It's Big Picture Science. Are you earning and investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next-level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. We can see a lot of evolutionary changes with nothing more than our eyeballs. A dog's hind legs, they're shorter than a wolf's, the fur is less coarse, and man's best friend has learned to love a leash. At least some of them have. I mean, evolution eventually produces whopping changes. Consider primates who lost their tails, grew larger brains, and eventually marched off the savanna and into corporate boardrooms. But whether it's altering morphology or behavior, evolution does its handiwork on the genetic level, and these genetic changes are often the result of mutations. So a nucleotide, that's A, T, C, or G, is occasionally altered between one generation and the next. But the changes are random. Most mutations are useless or bummers, but it's like the spin of a roulette wheel. Every now and then, a mutation hits the jackpot, genetically speaking. It confers a physical change that helps the organism become more suited to its environment. And we can't watch genes being swapped out, but we do have the next best thing, seeing the result, observing an organism morph and alter its behavior in real time. As a biologist and postdoctoral researcher at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Dave von Dittmarsh keeps his eye on a particular species of bacteria. What I work on is trying to recreate evolution in the lab by doing experiments in sequence and thereby eliciting mutations in bug called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. He and his team have watched Pseudomonas aeruginosa evolve. Now, bacteria are ideal for understanding how mutations confer advantages on an organism because it can happen so fast. Pseudomonas aeruginosa is not always a likable bacterium. It takes advantage of people who are immune compromised. But humans have plenty of relationships with friendly bacteria, if you can stomach hearing about it. One good example would be in the human gut. Um, in our intestine and on our bodies, we have about tenfold more bacteria than we have our own cells. So they have evolved with us to do things that we can't, like break down certain things that we eat. They digest it for us so that we can take stuff up. But in return, we give them the environment, the nourishing environment, for example, that is our gut. Well, in this program, we've been talking about co-evolution and discussing the morphological changes, the brain changes, all these changes that emerge as a result of evolution. But at the bottom of it all is a genetic change. And when you watch bacteria evolve in the lab, you're really watching genetic evolution in process, right? Yes, that's actually the magnificent beauty that we have by doing these experimental evolution runs in our lab, that we can actually genetically see what's changing to the very smallest level, which is a single nucleotide, uh, which is the smallest unit of the genetic code or DNA. And then we can see how that actually affects the cells or even the population, which is a bigger scale yet. So in the lab, by doing this, we actually can tease apart very well what is happening at all those different levels and what is the cause for those changes. 
So I guess because bacteria divide so often, you can see the results of a genetic change pretty quickly, whereas it would be much slower to watch this process in apes or giraffes or humans, right? You wouldn't be able to get as much done in the lab as you do. Exactly. Um, If you think of uh, what we call a generation time, so that would be basically for one unit to create progeny. If you look at a mouse, for example, already, that can take weeks to months. And that's a fast organism in that regard. Uh, Humans, it takes 20, 30, 40 years to to get a kid, basically. But bacteria, in certain media, they will divide or create progeny as as often as twice an hour. So the timescale at which we can actually observe evolution is much, much faster. Yes, we would have a population problem even more than we do on this planet if we were dividing twice an hour, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Reproducing if humans were. Okay, well, the bacteria that you've been working with, I understand um, it's not a bacteria in the gut necessarily. It's, it's one that's on the skin. Pseudomonas aeruginosa. What is this bacteria and where did it come from? What's it do? And what's it doing on us? It's actually a, an environmental or a microbe that's very, very abundant. It's in soil, it's in rivers, it's on us all the time, but it usually does not affect us at all as long as we're healthy. It becomes very important when you have your primary defense broken, which could be the most important or the most well-known example is cystic fibrosis patients. Those people have a lot of mucus in their lungs and can't clear that mucus. Pseudomonas loves to infect those people in the lungs, for example. But usually, as much as it is around us all the time, it does not affect healthy humans at all. But this is a bacteria that you were interested in watching in the lab because you could actually watch it evolve. But what did you see and what was particularly fascinating about watching this organism divide and evolve? So the changes that we were seeing, we could actually see by the naked eye as uh, the, the colony changed in morphology or in shape significantly. But that we managed to track down to a single genetic change afterwards. Okay, so you said the morphology was changing. So it started off with one pattern, or you saw something in the Petri dish, yes. and then it took on another shape. What were those shapes? The original shape, as we always observe it in the lab, is on the Petri dish, so again, four-inch diameter, that we see something that would be best described as a snowflake. It's very irregular in shape and actually quite pretty to watch. But then over the course of a few days, when this genetic change was happening, the snowflake turned into a circle that basically had the entire diameter of the plate. So is what's important here the fact that it went from a snowflake shape, this colony of bacteria, to kind of a circle shape? Or is what's important that there are some genetic changes happening and you're watching them in real time? Interestingly enough, it's actually both of them. It's that we can see so clearly that the entire population changes. So if the change is evolutionarily adaptive, then you will see the changes just reverberate throughout the bacteria colony. Exactly. That's incredible. And and what was the benefit they had with this particular change? Again, you were working with the, the bacteria uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. What was the benefit? In this case, the benefit was that um, usually Pseudomonas aeruginosa moves across surfaces by virtue of what we call a flagellum. That's most simply described as a whipping tail. When they whip it and turn it around, they can actually move. The genetic change that we saw conferred to the cells that they actually got more than one, uh, two to six of those whipping tails. And presumably this allows them to move better in this condition and then cover more surface than what we call the ancestral clone. Does that mean that when this bacteria um, infects a person, it is mutating, involving inside of that person or in the lungs or wherever it happens to be? Yes, it most definitely does. Um, One of the very notorious traits of Pseudomonas is that it changes enormously over the course of an infection. When it first infects, it's a single cell, and then it basically doesn't want to be seen by our immune system because otherwise our immune system can kill it. Once it goes into the host, it will start multiplying. Then it will start expressing certain genes or changing its behavior in order for them to launch an attack on the host. And then once they reach higher numbers, they will actually change into a completely different kind, almost different kind of bacterium, but a different kind of behavior. And that always happens over the course of infection. 
And and how does watching this bacteria change? How does it help scientists or doctors protect people or prevent infection? Is, are there any insights that you might have? That's what we're definitely hoping for. As a, because this is such an important pathogen, it, it infects a lot of people. We're always interested in knowing what the evolution would do, what evolutionary pressures would actually yield what kind of outcome, um, because very little is known about that for Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And then we always hope that when we see evolution occurring, we might find something that we could attack because nowadays everything around bacteria and pathogenesis is trying to move away from using regular antibiotics. So we need to find some other way to attack them in order to clear infections. And the bacteria are gaining resistance against uh, antibiotics in just the way that you've described here, that they're changing, they're mutating, and they're coming up with defense systems um, that prevent the antibiotics from working on them. That is absolutely correct. So, Dave, it must be amazing to watch evolution proceed in the lab with such a fine-tuned ability, and that evolution never stops. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, for us, for example, we thought that the behavior that we saw on the plates, it's such a complicated behavior. We actually had expected to see all kinds of different mutations arise, but instead we only saw one type of mutation ever occur, which makes a very interesting question also. Why does evolution in that case only allow one thing to happen for them to gain this benefit rather than a, a variety of different behaviors? And that makes for a very interesting question already in evolution alone. We'll leave that with people to contemplate. Dave Van Dittmarsh, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. Dave Van Dittmarsh is a biologist and postdoctoral researcher at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We evolved with bacteria, they change, we adapt, we change, they adapt, and so on. There are endless examples of co-evolutionary relationships between species, but biologist Peter Richardson tracks evolutionary relationships between humans and their culture, and he treats culture as a kind of species on its own, with plenty of power to exert influence on us and on our DNA. So coevolution between species is the idea that any two species that interact with each other are going to influence each other's environment and therefore influence the selective pressures that bear on each species. A famous example is predators and prey. So uh, prey are under selection by their predators to get better at escaping or distasteful or camouflaged. And predators, on the other hand, are under selection by their prey to be faster and better able to capture the prey, uh, able to spot camouflaged animals, track them, and so on. So for the example, let's say zebra and lions. So lions are fast and they will catch the the zebras that are slower, which prompts the uh, zebra to evolve to be faster and try to outrun the lions, that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, But you suggest another kind of coevolution, which is between one species, particularly Homo sapiens, and culture. Right. So the idea is, the basic idea is that when we learn from other people, it's a little bit like getting genes from our parents, except we don't just get culture from our parents. We get it from all sorts of other people. So it's not quite the same process. But we pass on an enormous amount of information this way. We're a unique species in that regard. Culture is actually widespread amongst social animals, but humans have this capacity for building complex technologies and evolving, we might say, complex technologies and complex social organization by transmitting ideas culturally. Well, just to be clear, this is something more than saying that culture changes. I mean, culture changes. That's why I'm not sporting a a beehive right now and wearing a a hoop skirt. I mean, it changes over time. We know that. But you're saying something more than that. Well, not too much more. So evolution, biological evolution, is defined as changes in gene frequencies. And you could say the same, that uh, cultural evolution is just what you say. It's changes in the clothing we wear, the words we use, the kinds of technology we use. So just over one lifetime, we've seen an enormous amount of change in all sorts of things. And the further claim, though, I think, is that not only does culture change, but we can study the processes that cause it to change by using some of the same basic concepts that we use to study organic evolution. But the key, I thought, in in co-evolution is the co. I mean, I can understand how we change culture, 
But how does culture change us? Well, think of something like the origins of agriculture. So around, starting around 10,000 years ago, we completely changed the kinds of diets that we eat. Most human populations did. So we started to eat large amounts of starch and much less meat and fat than we ate before. Because we were farming it. We were planting it. We were farming it, it and we were uh, planting the crops and growing large amounts of plants. And then a little bit later, we started domesticating animals. And before long, there were the the origins of dairying. And so that people all of a sudden, for example, started to drink milk as adults. But they couldn't use the lactose in milk until they, as adults, started to uh, secrete lactase in their gut to break down the milk sugar. Otherwise, the milk sugar just passes through or it's, or it's fermented by bacteria in your gut. And that sometimes causes people distress, which is why we talk about lactose intolerance. So what you're saying is that people who had developed dairy farming in particular developed an enzyme. I mean, they evolved so that this enzyme was expressed to allow them to digest milk, right? Right, which was something that they were producing, which maybe allowed them to drink more milk or produce more of it and so forth. Yeah, for whatever reason, there's enough data on this to uh, fit models of selection to it. And apparently in, in Northwestern Europe, the selection for this was quite strong. So there are skeletons that you can recover in Europe that have enough DNA left in them so that you can find this gene that causes uh, lactase persistence. And uh, fairly early farming and dairying populations in Northwest Europe already had this gene in high frequency. So uh, the selection for it was apparently quite strong, maybe only a thousand years or so for it to go from very low frequency to near fixation. Well, so it gets to the point that culture is really important. I mean, culture is having a physical effect on us as a species, as homo sapiens. Yes. So, for example, a learning culture, imitating other people and being taught, developmental biologists in the past few years have really gone in and tried to dissect the system by which uh, infants begin to learn culture. And it seems to be a human-derived special set of cognitive tools that infants and their parents use to establish the imitative behavior of children. To what degree can you use this model of coevolution with culture and, and species to explain differences between different ethnic groups and so forth that are usually characterized as stereotypes? Um, but for example, we can go with one such as Italian singers. Okay, So could there be some selective pressure on Italians so that they become wonderful opera singers, and when they become wonderful opera singers, then they can support their family, and they're more successful, and their genes are passed on. And that's why in our minds we may associate with great opera, and no means are Italians the only ones that can sing beautiful opera. I'll stop those letters before they come in, but just as an example, so you have wonderful Italian opera, and maybe there's some selective pressure on singers in, in Italy. Well, it's possible, but people sing in every culture, and very few people become professional opera singers. So it's a little bit hard to see how that kind of a difference could generate enough selection to select for superior opera singers. Now, it doesn't mean to say it's completely impossible. I think the most plausible story along these lines that's related to singing is the uh, tonal languages like Chinese. Uh, people that speak those languages are many more people that have perfect pitch than, than in Western societies or other societies that don't use tone as a, in such an important way in, in language. A fellow named Dan DeDue suggested that maybe by some freak accident, people who speak tonal languages have better perception of tone, and that led to the tonal language. Or that's one kind of coevolution. The other kind of coevolution might be that people who speak tonal languages speak them better if they have nearly perfect pitch, and speaking well is something that might be favored genetically. So perhaps speaking tonal languages for a few thousand years would lead to more people having perfect pitch. So it sounds like what's important here is to identify what's being expressed because we're humans and we have an adaptive skill that allows us to produce music and enjoy music and organize. And there are certain skills, general skills that we have, but then they're expressed in different ways in different cultures around the world. And it's important to keep those two things Different. There's not a gene, for example, for great opera singing, but there may be a set of genes that allow us to appreciate music and, and be musicians and, and sing and, 
that sort of thing. Yes, I think that's the right way to think about it. Uh, one of my uh, students did a nice uh, study uh, comparing the amount of cultural variation between neighboring societies. And he compared that to the classic uh, studies of the amount of genetic variation between neighboring groups. And there's more than 10 times as much cultural variation between groups by his estimate as there is genetic variation. So whenever you see uh, particularly a behavioral difference between two ethnic groups, like uh, their style of singing, uh, it's a good bet that it's mostly due at least to uh, cultural differences, not to, to genetic differences. Well, finally, I wonder where we are now in our coevolution between our species and evolution. I mean, you're here in the Silicon Valley. You've probably seen more than one person on a smartphone. And I wonder if our descendants will evolve to have small thumbs and great big eyes so they can read those smartphones better. Is it happening right now? Where are we headed? Well, anything that changes our environment is likely to change selection on our genes. So if smartphones with thumb pads for entering data into them persist for a thousand years or so, then you might expect that our thumbs might get a little shorter or a little, mine would have to get narrower. I can't uh, uh, strike those little buttons accurately. So sure, but the chances are that technology will move on before there's uh, very much adaptation. So it sounds like technology, at least right now, it changes so quickly. Nothing sticks around long enough that our body chemistry is going to start to be selecting for certain you know, behaviors or abilities. But what's the fastest, do you think, that we could change, physically change, to respond to the pressures of culture? How long would it take our thumbs to be perfectly adapted to a little button keyboards on our smartphone? I think if the selection were really strong, if you often didn't survive, if you couldn't type on a smartphone, then it might take 500 or 1,000 years to evolve thumbs that were really well adapted to pressing those buttons. If it doesn't matter that much, if the selection is, is weak, then it would take longer. What, what cultural influence right now do you think is exerting the most pressure on us? I would think that the biggest thing would be things related to diet and sedentary lifestyles, obesity and things related to that, because when you start getting kids in their teens that are showing signs of type 2 diabetes, now we're talking about something that could be a significant selective effect. Interesting. So it's diet, it's our habits, how we eat. It's not the bad television or the crazy ever-changing technology necessarily. Right. Pete Richardson, thank you so much for speaking with us and coming into the studio to do so. My pleasure. Peter Richardson is a professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis, in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy. He's the author of Not By Genes Alone, How Culture Transformed Human Evolution. Next, every man who has been in the Olympic 100-meter final since 1980 has come from a small area of West Africa. Is there a gene for that? You say you want an evolution. We got it on Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm -hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe, maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, you know the old golfer's observation that the more I practice, the luckier I get. Well, we take it to mean that practice will improve anyone's performance. But now we know you also got to have the right genes. you got to nurture that nature. As Sports Illustrated writer David Epstein discovered through his experience training with his college running team, all that practice just didn't explain the varying athletic accomplishments of his teammates, even though everyone got the same type and the same amount of that practice. 
In fact, I was a middle distance runner at the national level, and I had a training group of five uh, other guys who were outwardly quite similar to me. And we lived together, we ate together, we ran stride for stride day after day together, and yet we never even close to cross the finish line at the same time. In fact, we tended to get more different from one another as the season went on, not more similar. His love for sports and curiosity about its relationship with genetics led Epstein to research and write The Sports Gene. He wanted a satisfactory answer to just why some people achieve extraordinary athletic performance. Turns out it's a messy mixture of genes and hard work. Our genetically programmed hardware determines how much improvement we can make, whether you can consider the Olympics to be a realistic goal. But whether you actually get there depends on practice. You can't just rest on your DNA laurels and wait to collect your gold. Genetic science is now rewriting the definition of talent. So if you look back at old sports psychology papers, you'll see talent defined as um, something like athletic prowess that precedes the opportunity to train. And what sports geneticists are finding is that in many cases, the most important kind of talent is your genetic setup that allows you to profit more from your one hour of training than your teammates. So in some cases now, we can't really pre-screen until we've seen people do the training and see if they are what scientists are calling now high or low responders to that training. You've traveled all over the world for your book. I mean, you met athletes, coaches, scientists from, from Jamaica to the Arctic. Why did you go abroad to try and answer the question of uh, the relative importance of genes versus the training? Well, first of all, I was visiting labs and scientists all over the world, but also so much of the work that had been done was just coming at these questions from one angle, assessing nature or nurture, basically, both the popular work and the scientific work. And so you could read the physiology about Kenyan long-distance runners, but you have no idea what the environment's like, or you could read some popular writing about their environment that's totally divorced from any of the genetic information. So I felt like if I wanted to write authoritatively and see things that maybe scientists miss while I was studying things that journalists certainly miss, I really had to be there so I could credibly write about what, what I was seeing and, and talk to the athletes who were there. And sort of I was interested in their opinions about whether learning about innate talents devalues their accomplishments. I wanted to know what they had to say and share that as well. Well, you went to Jamaica, and apparently there's a part of that island, I think in the northwest corner or so forth, that produces a very high percentage of excellent sprinters, right? What did the, the local populace tell you was the reason for for that. Well, the lore on the island was that this group of warrior slaves who kind of escaped and beat back the British army and won their freedom a hundred years before emancipation cloistered themselves in this remote northwest rainforest. And the folklore on the island was, well, these were the strongest of the strong. You know, they survived the boat trip to Jamaica. They escaped. They beat the British army. They interbred with one another. And of course, all the great sprinters come from this stock because Quite literally, you know, Veronica Campbell Brown and Usain Bolt grew up right over the hill from them. These are the best sprinters of a generation. And so they said, well, yeah, you know, we, we claim them as our progeny. Does this hold up from the standpoint of science that there was indeed this selection effect? And that accounts for whatever it is that they have genetically that predisposes them to win on the track? Not so much at that level. So, so far from the DNA evidence, the maroons, that term comes from the Spanish word for a, an escaped horse, these runaway slaves, and they look pretty much like other Jamaicans do. So many Jamaicans who, who were brought to Jamaica as slaves were expert in warfare, but their DNA is, is mixed ethnicity, West Africans, and the maroons don't look any different. Now, West Africans from that area in general is a different question, but the maroons, it doesn't look like the folklore is backed up by the DNA evidence at this point. So, in fact, this isn't the explanation then? Is, is that what you're saying, that it, it really isn't a select gene pool? Not in that sense of the Maroons. There, there absolutely is a reason. So every man who has been in an Olympic 100-meter final since the boycotted games of 1980, whether his homeland is America, Canada, Jamaica, Portugal, Netherlands, Nigeria, every single one has come from a rather small area of West Africa. And there is a reason for that. But at the micro level, the story of the Maroons in Jamaica, the evidence doesn't support it. Can you tell me what the effect of whatever genetic 
pattern exists there in West Africa for this small group. How it manifests itself? Do they have longer legs? Do they have different musculature? What What's the difference? Well, both of those things. So they do have longer legs. It's an adaptation for cooling, the same reason that your radiator has long coils to increase the surface area to the volume to let heat out. And long legs proportional to your size is really good for sprinting and really bad for swimming. But also, people from that area tend to have, just on average, just on average, a higher proportion of fast-twitch muscle fibers, which are the kind that you want for explosive activities, but that are terrible for endurance activities. And in the book, I discuss evidence that that average shifted up a little bit in those people due to genetic adaptations that protect against malaria that make people from that area of West Africa very much disadvantaged for endurance sports and, uh, on average, uh, better suited for explosive sports. So these people, thanks to the effects of malevolent mosquitoes, develop a a genetic pattern which, you know, doesn't give them the endurance. They they run out of steam quickly, but on the other hand, they run very quickly before they're out of steam. They have these fast-twitch muscles. And so West Africans are very much underrepresented in distance sports, very much underrepresented in distance sports. And all that all that we've talked about, even that said, it doesn't come down to purely a genetic explanation. So there are as many or more people of Jamaican descent in the United States as there are in Jamaica. And yet Jamaica is still kicking our butts in track and field. But could the fact that there are Jamaicans, Jamaican ancestry in any case, here in the U.S., and, and we're not doing so well in track and field, could that just be... You know, the emphasis in this country that if you're really good, you have these fast twitch muscles. We don't send you into the 100-yard dash. We send you into, I don't know, football or something else. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge piece of it. I mean, look at, look at Usain Bolt, for example. He was six foot four with blazing speed when he was 15 years old. Can you imagine a six foot four, 15-year-old who can run possibly ending up in track and field in the United States? Of course not. There's no way. There's probably three other countries other than Jamaica on earth where that would happen, Bahamas, Trinidad, maybe Barbados. So in Jamaica, their high school track is like Texas high school football here. You know, shady boosterism and all. Their high school coaches bribing parents with refrigerators to get the fast kids to come to their school. And they really, really have this sort of natural talent filter that happens because of that. What about filters that accrue to people who just have very obvious physical uh, characteristics that look useful for sports, such as height? Yeah, that's the most obvious one, but I was still surprised. Turns out that height is an incredibly narrowly constrained trait. 68% of American men are in the six-inch range from 5'7 to 6'1. The odds of someone, an American man who's between the ages of 20 and 40, being in the NBA if they're 6'10 is 3.2%. If you move that up to seven feet, there's actually no percentile in the CDC data at seven feet, but the curve suggests that there's a 17% chance of any given seven-foot American man being in the NBA right now. So if your kid is seven feet, they have a one in six chance of being in the NBA. That's right. And of course, again, there's no percentile at that height. So it's an estimate. But with every two inch increase in height above six foot two, the chance of getting to the NBA goes up about an order of magnitude. But David, wouldn't evolutionary pressures, you know, over the course of the last 200,000 years make all of us superstars when it comes to running, for example, to get away from predators? Uh, No, for a number of reasons. So first of all, we do as a species have a pretty high capacity for a certain type of endurance running that is done in the heat. That said, Evolution settles on good enough, not exactly the same, first of all. Secondly, our geographic ancestry changes our body types to be good for different parts of the world. So at people with northern latitude ancestry, in order to retain heat, have very short limbs and wide bodies. And that's terrible for running. So, you know, being evolved for the body type for great sprinting would have been a disadvantage for those people. So our geographic ancestry really has put us into different niches biologically. Yeah, I guess you don't have to be a champion runner to outrun a walrus. (laughs) Yeah, I've never tried, but I guess not. David, we've been talking about genes that might confer some sort of physical advantage, but what about, you know, motivation? I mean, in a lot of cases, people figure that guy succeeded because he had the drive. Is that just, you know, something their parents instilled in them, or is there a genetic component there, too? Well, I think that's funny. That gets to that gets the old question of, so do you blame your genes or do you blame your parents? And of course, it's a little bit inextricable, right? For example, I knew that the pleasure and reward systems in the brain that make us feel reward for eating, for uh, drugs, for exercise, respond to the things that we do, respond to us going out for a run, that the dopamine system changes. I did not know that scientists who do work in that area have voluminous evidence that the reverse is true 
that our level of physical activity responds to our dopamine system and that we have implicated genetic variation in differences in dopamine system that makes some people not really feel good unless they're being physically active. One of those genes that's implicated is actually the one that's known to predispose people to having ADHD which is nothing other than a drive to be in motion. And what do you do? You give them a drug that changes the dopamine environment in their brain and suddenly they can sit still. Intuitively, I knew that I used to have training partners, some of whom you had to manage to get to train more and some you had to manage to get to train less. I didn't know that we'd actually found some of these, these sort of so-called couch potato genes is one of the physiologists who studies them and called them to me. But if we think about those, so those couch potato genes, I've had a lot of questions of, you know, people saying, laughing, saying, well, I guess this explains why I don't have to work out. And no, that's not the answer. True, you can't change your DNA, but that just means you need to work harder to manipulate your environment in a way that's going to be conducive to you exercising or conducive to you training. Again, I was a national level runner and I know what worked for me. I know certain habits and having a training group worked for me and that I could get lazy without those things. And I was able to accomplish a lot in my athletic career by focusing on manipulating my environment in areas that came to me less easily. So hard work did pay off for you. No question about it. And, but of course, for the book, I was tested for certain genes that showed I also have a, have a high ability to respond to aerobic training very quickly. So that helped too. Well, then, do you foresee a time in the not-too-distant future when parents could simply have their kids' DNA sequenced and then decide whether to lay out the big bucks for sports? Well, they, they could already do that. For the most part, I wouldn't recommend it for a number of reasons. One, let's say you want to get your kid. The most common test that's offered to consumers right now is for the ACTN3 gene, the so-called sprint gene, because it produces its codes for a protein that's found in fast-twitch muscle fibers only. And if you have the so-called wrong version, you're just not going to be in the Olympic 100-meter final. Like, that's just a fact. I'm sorry. But most people actually do have one of the right versions. And a better genetic tool would be a stopwatch. Take your kid to the park and have them race the other kids. And you'll find out more than you will with a single gene test. So there's no reason to do it. The kind of gene testing I think parents should be aware of is the kind of testing for, for example, the APOE gene, where a version of which we know predisposes some people to having permanent brain damage if they get hit in the head a, a lot, as happens in football. And I, I'm sort of frustrated that more people aren't aware that that exists. When we can alter the genetic code of our offspring, is everybody going to become a superstar? I mean, is commercial television going to implode because professional sports won't even be interesting. Well, I don't think we should do that um, just for athleticism. But certainly when we get these single gene targets like the myostatin gene or the EPOR gene that I write about in chapters in the book, anytime there's a single gene target, that makes it easy to look at as something that can be manipulated. And I think athletes have shown that regardless of any health consequences, if something can be accessed, they will access it. David Epstein, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. David Epstein is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, and he is the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Thank you to our highly evolved production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to You Say You Want an Evolution? And you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it confers some greater evolutionary advantage on you, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. I said, give me the plush toy, Squiggles. Open your mangy maw, you flea-ridden... <laughs> oh, never mind. You can keep the toy. <laughs> That's a good Squiggles.